Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. Folks, welcome back. This is Commander Mark Devine with the Unveiled Mind podcast on the SealFit channel. And today uh, I have a very cool guest named Eric Blem, who is an author. And we're going to get into all the books that he's written. Excellent, excellent books. He's a New York Times bestselling author. Um, and I just finished one of his books called Fearless. You may recognize that title. Uh, but before we get started, before I uh, kind of introduce Eric here, um, I'd like to remind you that if you're not on our email list, then you're missing out. So go to SealFit.com. Drop your email, that's all we need, into the email uh, form there, and we'll start getting you our um, you know, weekly Sealfa TV, blog posts, all that kind of stuff. Special offers only available to our email list, so please do that. And uh, if you got something, um, if you learned something cool, if you want to promote uh, Eric's books, which I hope you do, then please um, just call it out on our Twitter, um, use social media. Uh, Facebook is uh, SealFit.com or NavySeals.com. Uh, Twitter, markdevine.com, or seal fit. All right, so here we go. Eric, thanks very much. Eric, you're local. You live up in Carlsbad. Uh, Cardiff, down, oh, Cardiff, down in Cardiff, just around the corner. You're thanks for having there. me. And it's, it's great to be here. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm stoked that you made the trip, I'm, especially in person. You know, it's not, not the same to do a phone call. It is very cool when they mention that. It's like a lot. I do so many things like this over the phone, and it's nice right. to sit here and have a conversation and Absolutely. have a coffee. <laughs> now, I just mentioned to you earlier before we started that um, I was back at my Colgate reunion, and, uh, you know, funny how things work out. And I was um, talking to uh, Captain Rick Ballard, who's a Navy SEAL, former uh, commander of Dev Group. And um, I had just met him there for the first time. He's a Colgate grad. And he asked me, you know, he said he wanted to read my book, uh, The Way of the SEAL. And then he asked me if I had read Fearless. It was like out of the blue. And I said, no, I hadn't. But I had a copy of it sitting back in my office, you know, and I had been intending to, right? Wow. And so he goes, anyways, he goes, I, I believe in the book so much that I actually brought a couple copies with me to Colgate to give out to guys. And he, wow. he, he referenced, I think, um, Adam Brown and the, the book in his little talk that he gave up at Colgate. Wow. So um, that was kind of cool. And so he handed me a book and I read it like cover to cover on the airplane on the way home. Wow. So excellent wow. job. Thank uh, you very much. Job. What I love about the book is, A, it's not written by a team guy. Of course, Adam was deceased, so he couldn't do that. Um, you had a very objective point of view, you know, like you were just telling it the way it was. Mm -hmm. And of course the subject matter, Adam himself is what we all want to think we are like as seals. (laughs) And and most of us fall far short because he was quite a man. So why don't we just start, you know, I want to, 
Gosh, you know, I wanted to get more about your background, but I just dove right into this because it's so interesting. But tell us about um, how you came to write this book. Like, where, what's that story? Well, first of all, I always like to tell people that it's, uh, it's, it's my book, but it's their story. Yeah, it's the people who I write about. And that's where I really, I really strive to make myself invisible in my stories. Yeah. I love it when people turn around after reading a book and say, what are your, what's your politics? What's your religion? What's this? And I say, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Right? It doesn't matter. And that's what journalism should be. Right. And this is well, narrative I, I'm, nonfiction. I'm really stoked that you tied it together at the very end, though, as to how it came about that you wrote the book. Right. Because that, that piece was important to me. Like, why, throughout the thing, I was wondering, why you? Why me? Yeah, yeah no. Well, I, all these books, each book has led from one to the next. And I was the editor of a snowboarding magazine, mm-hmm. pre-9-11. I was a journalism major, San Diego State, a surfer. The, the closest I ever got to, sur- to the military was keeping my hair cropped short with a flat top with a little bit of peroxide thrown in. <laughs> then when I was in high school in the 80s, and I would try and um, just drive past the guards at Pendleton yeah, with, a, ba- with a bad salute. <laughs> Back then, pre-9-11, it, was, okay. it was pretty, you know, 90% of the time we'd get in, 10% we'd get somebody with the bo- their boss sitting there, an right? officer that said, you don't have um, a sponsor or an right. ID. But I would go and surf Del Mar Jetties at Pendleton with my buddies and try and make off as though I was a grunt. And that was really about the closest I would ever get. My mindset was very anti-military at the time and not anti-military, but just wasn't part of my life. Right, right, of course. But after 9-11, I took a step back and I said, you know, what's your part in all this? Mm -hmm. What can you do? At that point, I was... A lot of people had that reaction. Really? A lot of people did. I mean, the the flags came up everywhere and this surge in patriotism. And for me as a writer, I'd always actually deeply respected the military. Mm -hmm. My parents taught me to do so. Mm -hmm. Um, I had no military tradition in my family, Mm -hmm. but I would read the books and I would uh, convey the stories in school sometimes. Uh, I read a lot about Vietnam, World War II, and a lot of the World War II vets were dying off. And so many of them never spoke of their experiences. And that was what I was thinking, you know, that greatest generation. I realized after 9-11, this is our greatest generation mm-hmm. now. And right. people need to tell these stories. And that's when I did a huge 180 in my career from writing my first nonfiction book that went big was the, non, the last season, which was a story of a park service ranger, someone mm-hmm. else who served. But he was a pacifist and, mm-hmm. you know, dedicated his life to protecting the people from the park or the park from the people. And um, That was called The Last Season? The Last Season. So on that, did they ever find the guy? Yeah, like the, the guy walked into the wilderness and they've never seen again. Yeah, he that was a time that he was a, a veteran of the wilderness. He grew up in Yosemite. He used to carry around Ansel Adams' tripod as a kid. Okay. Wallace Stegner used to critique his journals, and then he um, he was known as the wise man of the woods, the Obi Wan Kenobi of the backcountry. Right. He was a guy when someone went missing, they'd go to him. Right. And then one day he went missing, and I don't want to give it away for anybody that might want to read it. I'm not trying to sell books here, but it would ruin it. Um, I will say that there is closure at the end. Is there? And he went into the backcountry with a lot of baggage. The heaviest item in his pack, he said, was divorce papers. He had an affair. Um, so he went into the woods to end it. Uh, potentially, yes. Yeah. And that's one of the, one of the scenarios that we um, put together. And all of his buddies who always used him as their leader in these search and rescue operations searched for him. Interesting. And then from there, again, 9-11 hit. And that's when I said I wanted to tell these stories of those who serve. And, and it's interesting. But now that I've written the, la- the only thing worth dying for with my first book, Fearless and then Legend, mm-hmm. people are always, always come around and ask, what is the common trait between all right. these guys? And we can get into that yeah. later. But it's... 
Interesting, the, the selflessness. I call these guys... Selflessness and heroism in the face heroism. of you know extraordinary circumstances. I, and to tell the stories, right. a lot of the guys I've written about were killed in the line right. of duty or have since passed, and so I'm right. talking to their buddies and who wants to tell the stories. And you always find them, yourself included and others that have served in special operations... They're masters of deflection. Mm-hmm. They always deflect off themselves. You yeah. and and that's what makes you get these a more books accurate possible. picture sometimes from the friends. Of you get an accurate picture from the, the friends, and then I have to come back and circle back and say, "You never told me that your fingers were severed, <laughs> you know, in that such operation." He said, "Well, that was a detail, you know, these kind of things." Right. And that's what's so great about being kind of invited into that fold and mm-hmm. having them trust you and tell to tell their buddies stories. Mm-hmm. Really is. So let's go back to the only uh, thing worth dying for was about an ODA, the ODAs who went in and worked with the Northern Alliance. Was that that group? Or? That, well, it is. You've heard of the story of the, the horse soldiers. Right. What makes um, the, the only thing worth dying for a little different is this is the first SF team ODA. It was ODA 574 that went into southern Afghanistan. There okay. was no Northern Alliance. There was no standing militias opposing the Taliban. This okay. was the Taliban held south. And this is the team that went in with Hamid Karzai. Got it. Before... Anybody knew who that, what that name was? He was an obscure Afghan statesman, right, right. but he was Pashtun. Mm-hmm. And the Northern Alliance were all minority tribal groups. And if one of those leaders would have been the one that rose to the top, you know, there likely would have been civil war. I mean, just because of the majority Pashtun. And it worked out that during the course of this two and a half week long mission with this ODA, Hamid Karzai rises from virtual obscurity to become the leader of a nation. Hmm. And every member of that 11-man team, it was an 11-man team there, one man under What was their mission? Was it to bring Karzai and protect him? And they were, their was mission he, was, was to... Was Karzai kind of like the, the anointed one by the U.S. government? Not at all. He was not. He was, in fact, all he wanted to do was his mission, his mantra was to have a loya jurga. He wanted a democratic process to find a leader. He was not touting himself mm-hmm. as the leader. In fact, he didn't want it. He just was going after it. Their mission was to foment a rebellion among the southern Taliban so they could rise up from within to overthrow the Taliban or have them surrender. Mm-hmm. And through the course of this, um, again, every member of this 11-man team was either wounded or killed. And really? Karzai rose from obscurity to become the interim leader of the nation. Wow. And it all happened because a critical moment. When these guys were on the ground... There was two things that happened. One, they did all of this training because they were going to land in a certain village and they were going to try and start building this militia and getting weapons dropped in. And um, almost immediately, the first thing that went wrong was it wasn't the village they thought it was. And so their whole plan was out the window. They had to reformulate their evasion, their, you know, if they get hit, anything like that. Second thing was that a, a, another local area village or township, Terrancoat, rose up against their Taliban leaders and hung one of the guys in the street. And so there's all of a sudden the Taliban send this retribution force from Kandahar to put down this uprising. And here's these 11 men with about 30 guys, that's it, coming against 500 tr- um, trucks, no, or 500 men in like you know 80 trucks to put down this rebellion. And they had this opportunity right then and there, critical moment. Do we abort this mission? Because we're clearly not ready. Or do we to go and face the enemy and try and save this town from slaughter. Mm. And they made that decision. Those 11 guys made that decision. Captain Jason Amarin, um, who's in the news recently, mm. uh, but he and his men from ODA 574 went and called in air support, got to the forefront of this town, met this group coming through, and what would have been a slaughter, they pushed, beat them back with calling in close air support and their own firepower. 
And the next morning, the Taliban are saying, there's thousands of Americans down in, in Tarenko, you know, and, this, and they think that, and, no, and, and they're, he's being led by Hamid Karzai. And all of a sudden, Karzai is like, ah, he's like, and it's all with all a bunch of BS because, in fact, there were 11 Americans on the ground no leading with 30 guys with, you know, American um, rifles, power, and that's it, and a few, you know, mortars. Right. And, but they had air power. Right. And, of course, the Taliban that got their butts whipped didn't want to admit yeah. that that happened. So yeah. they're saying there's battalions on the ground and divisions and whatever. And then, and again, they all thought they were being led by Karzai. Yeah, and that's sure. how the, it so turned around. And that's the beginning. Yeah. That's, how it, that's how it happened. And they could have easily aborted the mission. Right. And they didn't. They took that moment, that moment of truth. And look at it. To this day, it's the most geopolitically significant mission in the war on terror. I mean, it, it, it led um, to changing uh, uh, the whole course of the war mm-hmm. and um, Karzai to ultimately become the leader of the nation. Like him or not, that's how it happened. Fascinating. Yeah. So um, you wrote that when? when? When did that book come out? That was out in 2006, 2006 I believe. Okay. Yeah. So how did, how did you weave from there to uh, Fearless? You know... Somebody who got to know the men of ODA 574 and the men, the families of the guys who did not come home, mm-hmm. who did not survive that mission, uh, he, they, they were friend, he was friends with um, the family of Adam Brown, who was the really? main character in Fearless. Mm-hmm. His name was Rick Stewart. He was executive producer for the NRA Life of Duty. Okay, right. Um, and they had the, done a, a little documentary. He did a documentary on Adam Brown. Right. And through the course of this documentary, working with um, Dev Grew guys and the family, found out that they wanted his story told. Actually, Adam had wanted his story told after he was killed. They read in his final wishes, yeah. you know, if ever yeah, I'm killed, yeah. you can tell this story, and I, I will in, embrace telling about my dark past. Mm-hmm. And they put it together, and this I guy doubt Adam story. actually thought people would write books or do documentaries. He just wanted people to tell the truth about him. They wanted to tell the truth right. because he was, you know, we can get to that. Um, yeah. His ba- past was not sparkly clean. Right. And he wanted to No, in fact, it's pretty extraordinary that he was able to get into the Navy, you know, with his past. A, mir- a, miracle, a miracle or just a complete, like, falling through the cracks. And people right. to this day, some people have called out in reviews, this is total, there's no way this happened. Someone with that past could not make it through this um, top secret clearance up to the tier one level. It's impossible. This has to be total, utter BS. Right. And we know for a fact that it was yeah. utterly true. Because the guys loved him so much, they just kept... Pull him through. They loved him so much, and he from his past. It's a great example of your reputation will precede you. Right. And they say, even buds, they say, your reputation starts now. It does, yeah. And yeah. for Adam Brown, his day. reputation started as a kid in Arkansas. He was that kid who he would stand up for the, the underdogs, the kids getting bullied. His right. dad always told him, if you see a kid getting bullied and you don't do anything, you're no better than the bully. Right. And things like that, yeah. and that's really what, how he led his life up to that point. And when it, right. you know, when his life turned that corner, and he went downhill, and he became a drug addict, and went to jail, he was luckily he he had people on his, in, that remembered his past and what right. he had been originally, and that they thought he could rise above it. And that's how he was able to get waivers signed, and he had a second chance um, right. to join the Navy, right. and that was where he wanted to turn his life around. And boy, yeah. he did. Well, one of his best friends was in charge of that recruiting district. Yes. And provided some top cover for him. His best friend's father. His father. Remembered, remembered a very critical moment in his life where he went to a boat party at his house. Right. And he had told him, he said, 
His, his mom didn't want him to go. He became a SEAL, but he, his mom didn't trust his swimming abilities. Right. And they were going to this boat party on a lake with a bunch of kids, teenagers hanging out. And he said that she said, finally said, you can go if you wear a life preserver. <laughs> the entire party. Not cool, right? 15-year-old kid right. wearing an orange life preserver on a boat. And his father, his name was Jeff Bushman, and his father um, was a high-level naval recruiter in that whole half of the country. Mm-hmm. And he remembered the guys, once they were out on the lake, and he was hanging out with them in this flotilla of boats of kids just having a good time. And they were saying, your mom's not here, dude. Take that stupid thing off. And Mr. Bushman remembered Adam's response was, nah, it's cool, I promised. How cool is that? And he remembered that years later when he got that call and said, hey, I got someone in my office. He's a crack addict. He's been to jail. He has 11 felony counts. <laughs> His name's Adam Brown. He says that you might vouch for him. And Mr. Bushman said years later, yeah. I do remember Adam Brown. I do know Adam Brown. And I will sign all the necessary waivers. That's incredible. And that's it. You know, I've, I realize that a lot, a lot of folks listening may not know um, who Adam Brown is. So probably can uh, contextualize this a little bit better so before we get too deep into it anymore but adam brown was a navy seal and adam brown um, was killed in combat 2010 yes 2010 uh, about nine months to a year before the bin laden raid it was the same troop he was in the troop that went after bin laden he was killed in a high profile raid and it's all detailed in the book but what's extraordinary about Adam was his uh, humility and his selflessness. And I think that, that rings through, you know, time and time again. Um, and also, he had a really dark past. I mean, he amazing kid growing up, but then he hooked up with um, a, a woman who was a bad influence and led him into drugs, and he ended up addicted to crack cocaine, and it became his demon to slay. Yeah. And it was the SEAL training and his teammates who helped him slay that demon. And his faith. And his faith, that's right. Yeah, a huge thing, a huge part of his life was the faith. It must have been very emotional to um, really get into the into the personality of Adam and trying to write a book like that. What was that experience like for you to to, it, to try to carry you know his energy in the writing? That book, I mean, the, my books. The last season took me seven years to write. The only thing we're dying for three and a half years. Legend, two more than two years. Adam's book, Fearless, came out in about a year, and I'm telling you that it was just this. That force that you're talking about of talking to the people that was conveyed is just so many great things mm-hmm. came out in these interviews. And you do, you feel that weight of their legacy, of his right. life, his reputation, his family's reputation. Not to mention he had two young kids that I knew right. were going to read that book someday. Right. And at the end of the day, I always go back to the father of Daniel H. Petitori, who was the father of one of the special forces soldiers killed on that ODA 574 mission in The Only Thing Worth Dying For. I met his family. I went to his house. I went to the little town, Cheshire, Massachusetts, where the tallest building of the church steeple, went to his grave, played in the trees where he climbed as a kid. And his dad told me after this long weekend, getting to know who, who Dan was from the day they brought him home from the hospital into that house mm-hmm. until the day they got the knock on the door that said he'd been killed. And he told me, Eric, just tell it to us straight. Yeah. Don't candy coat it. Don't dramatize it. He was a professional. He believed in accountability. He was a C-plus student, B-minus. He wasn't an A-plus student, mm-hmm. but that was Dan. And mm-hmm. tell it to us straight, and that's how you can honor these men, their mission, and history. Mm-hmm. And I take that with me into every book, and mm-hmm. that's what I did with Adam Brown. I went into it, and I just told the family, I'm going to tell it straight. Yeah. And that's when I learned that they had gotten that same blessing from Adam, where in his Keiko forms, mm-hmm. he said, 
if you if I'm ever killed, tell the story of not just me being a Navy SEAL, the success story. Tell the truth before I found my faith and met Kelly and turned my life around. He was giving license to his family and blessings to his family to say, let people know I was a dirtbag drug addict. He wanted his life to be a testament for others who might be struggling. It was his testimony and it was a testament because he really always selflessly, he always put, he always put others before himself Mm -hmm. and he wanted people, he was willing to let those skeletons out of his closet, even in death. Mm-hmm. So they would know that you can be in this dark place mm-hmm. and you can rise above that and you can rise above that darkness and crawl out of that hole and right. make something of yourself. And yeah. he was in the darkest hole you can get in. He was pretty dark, yeah. What were some of your uh, favorite stories that came out of that, you know, that you tell in the book? What, what ones really did you just think really exemplified the character of Adam Brown? One that's a really great story is when he was a kid, he played football and he was a little guy one of the littlest guys on the team, and he would train. His, his biggest goal in life was to wear the varsity letter of his high school football team. We're talking Friday Night Lights, right. Arkansas, Har- yeah. Hot Springs, Arkansas. And he, one great story, I think, was when he was with his coach, he was JV, he was the littlest guy, and they would do a drill called Blood Alley, where they mm-hmm. would line up in a row in an alley, and the coaches would call out numbers, and they would pull two people together, they'd get in a three-point stance and try and bolt each, each other over. <laughs> And all summer long, after Hell Week and everything, it was always Adam, the little guy. The little guys were always sneaking into the back and trying to be small. And he was always, coach, coach, pick me, pick me. And he always wanted to go up against the big linebacker, the lineman, the varsity, while he was JV. And then finally one day, at the end of the summer, I spoke to his coach. And he remembered this story where Adam, they finally, he said Adam broke us down. And we finally gave him a shot. <laughs> and they put him in against a big old lineman. And he immediately just bowled him out over. And he said Adam got up. He said he Pick the turf out of his face mask this and hit himself on the head. Running at each other, full like speed. gladiators, full um, speed. <laughs> full speed. American gladiator, you know, in Hot Springs, Arkansas, sweating bullets in the in the humidity. Right. And the, what coach blows the whistle, and he got back up and threw it, and got back into the stance. It wouldn't take no for an answer. Let's go again. And he went again, and then he went a second time. And he got bowled over by this lineman again. And this coach told me later, he said, when they were walking off the field, that Adam Brown, this little JV runt taught his team more about character in those few minutes mm-hmm. than they could that entire season. I bet. And then Adam, on the way off the field later, he went up to that lineman, and one of his buddies told me, and he said, you know, Adam went up and thanked that guy. He said, thanks for not going easy on me. That's cool. And that's Adam Brown. That's There's one of my favorite stories. Old, you know, that's cool. Against, going against a senior lineman that's probably 70 pounds, 80 pounds right. heavier than him. Right. You know, <laughs> twice his size. Don't he, go easy. Yeah. You know, he was amazing. Like, he... He made it his mission to get his boat crew through buds. You know, every time he got injured, he just didn't, you just couldn't keep this guy down. Could no, you? no. <laughs> I mean, the list of injuries started to make me cringe. I mean, he got his eye shot out. He literally chopped his hand off in a Humvee accident. Yeah. You know, broke his foot. What else? Broke his leg a couple times. Broke his leg a couple times. They, they removed a shard of bone this big out of his. He brought it home to show his wife, Kelly, um, who was the other secondary hero in this whole right. book. And he said, God, this is what's been bugging me all these years. <laughs> this floating piece of bone in his ankle, above his ankle bone. Yeah, he, how many guys will have their dominant right eye shot out and then the fingers on their dominant right hand shot off, or severed, crushed off crushed. in a hum, Humvee holding the window when it rolled and it crushed him off. Still gave aid to everybody else first before right. they found those fingers and bandaged him up, had him reattached, but they were toast. His fine motor skills were gone. But what does he do? He says, I want to be a sniper. And he learns, 
he passes that, which is everybody says, if not yeah. the toughest, the second toughest school in the Navy. It's a tough Navy. course, yeah. Tough the fact course. that he passed it offhand, off eye. Offhand and off eye. extraordinary. Yeah. And that's with rifle. And then he says, I want to go to SEAL Team 6. I want to go to Dev Grew. And he had to make that qualification process, shooting offhanded. Mm-hmm. And classic Adam, he, he, he was able to do it. And it's, people don't quite get it. I try and use the analogy sometimes as a, as a, at the level of a NFL quarterback going into the Super Bowl. And a few months before, coach tells him, we're going to bandage your right eye so you have no peripheral vision. And we're, you have to take the hike and you have to throw and you have to do everything with your left hand when you're right-handed. And let's, by the way, let's shoot at you while this is going on and have <laughs> yeah, exactly. throw grenades at you while you're trying to run the team. Right. That's what he was up against going through green team. Right. And it just... Just nuts that he did it. One of the armorers who would kind of help his sights out so he could, you know, shoot offhanded. They tweaked the sights so he could shoot accurately. He, um, asked him one day, come on, Adam, come clean. You're a Jedi, right? And I'm going to butcher his accent, but his, his response was, nah, I just, you know, I just pray a lot. And, and, and that was his, with his Southern Arkansas drawl. That was, that was, he just brushed it off, deflected the compliment. Right. And said, eh. And, um, it's, it's that humility. Adam, there was a kid in his high school that had Down syndrome. His name was Richie. And he was getting kind of picked on, not overtly, but just underhandedly, guys making comments, obviously making fun of him, and Adam picked up on it. Mm-hmm. And he walked up to him, stood between Richie and these guys, and, and they were bigger than him, looked up at them and said, you know what, if you want to pick on somebody, pick on me if you think you're big enough. And he's <laughs> looking up at him. And they kind of went their own special, their own way. And Richie Cunningham, this kid with Down syndrome, remembered Adam forever. And Adam was a guy that in the, in the hallways would walk by and give him a high five and see him in town. And he'd go and sit down with him if he saw him at, you know, the malt shop or whatever. He would take the time. He knew what it meant to be nice at an age when most kids are just being punks. Mm. And his buddies included. They said, he, Adam taught us to be nice, to be nice. And years later, that comes full circle because who was the town's, um, uh, memorial marker. His parents, Richie's parents, made memorial markers, oh, no and they donated for Adam's headstone. Is that right? That because Richie, to that day, remembered Adam yeah. from yeah. years earlier, and it was a it was a, a sad moment when they had to tell Richie that Adam Brown, who was oh, his man. hero, mm-hmm. had been killed in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and he had a homecoming. And his buddies at the funeral, they said, you know, Adam, he should have been dead in a ditch 15 years ago. We all expected it. And you turn, he, you know, and look at this now and this little cemetery in Arkansas with, you know, thousands of people lined up for his funeral. <laughs> they said, look, look, look what he did. Right. Look what he turned his life around to become. And that's an inspiration. That it is. inspires me to today just talking about it. Yeah. And I've told the story. I admit, I, mean, I, I had, I was, you know, tears were running down my face. I was on the airplane, you know, I was like flying back and I was like <laughs> looking around to see if anyone was watching me going, Holy shit, I had my reading glasses on, unfortunately. I was like, <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a, and, it and a tearjerker. It is. End. Holy cow. It is. And, you know, then that, then stories like that, I think, how can that be topped? And then I learn about legend and, yeah. and Roy Benavidez, a name I'd never heard of. Yeah. And it just, so let's talk, yeah, let's shift, shift now. I've heard of Roy because I remember when he got the Medal of Honor. It was only a few years ago, wasn't it, that he was actually awarded the Medal? It was, it was 81. Oh, 81, okay. Um, Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan presented it to him 13 years after his mission. And this okay. was, for me, it was, it was, it was Vietnam. And it's a, you know, having success in the current generation of wars was a little, I mean, everybody wants to talk about ISIS right now yeah. and with Al Qaeda and the Taliban. Yeah, and Vietnam and, seems like a long time ago. Vietnam is time. a long time ago, but I have, I've always had a place in my heart for the Vietnam vets and knowing what they went through on their homecoming. I had a neighbor who was a vet 
and Vietnam veteran. And it's just, I feel like, you know, these stories um, need to be told still to mm-hmm. the current generation. Absolutely. And his story with a pretty high profile story, and I'm somebody who's pretty well read. I love these, I love these books, other books that other people have written, but I had never heard of him. You never heard of him, yeah. And I'm I not realized sure how right I then, came across him, but. Um, you know, I, I realized then after I, I learned about it from my agent's mom, um, mm-hmm. my literary agent's mom, I had no idea she reads my books. And one day I got an email from my agent and said, take a look at this YouTube video that my mom sent. And it was, the message was, this should be Eric Blum's next book. Um, we need more stories like Adam Brown of, you know, good role models, American role models. And this one is unbelievable. And I so found, let's talk about the story of Roy. Roy? Yeah. Roy Benavides was a kid from Texas. He was a migrant farm worker as a teenager. He was orphaned at age seven. He was three years old. He, um, three years old, he was orphaned. His dad died of tuberculosis. Age seven, his mom died of tuberculosis. He was adopted by an uncle who already had eight kids. Mm-hmm. And it was a kind of the racially turbulent, you know, South period of, of time. He mm-hmm. could not go to the movie theater. He'd pay the same nine cents as everybody else. Was and he, be, were his parents uh, immigrants? I mean, not immigrants. They'd actually been in the country. His, his, uh, his answers, I don't know if it was, it was, it would have been a grandfather, great grandfather fought for America in the tech, the war, Tex, Texas versus okay. Mexico. Really? Yeah. They'd been, they had, they had records of their having uh, land in the 1800s. So he was a, an American. Yeah. And this was something that he was always taught. He said his, his grandfather, his uncle who adopted him said, you know, we, you're, Benavides is a Mexican name, but you're an American. Mm-hmm. We'll not, we won't forsake, we won't forget our heritage, um, but we won't let it hold us back either. Mm-hmm. And still, he had, you know, he couldn't go in the front door of the diner where he washed dishes. No kidding. He could not sit at the bar at the, at the um, malt shop and order a Coke. He, really? he had to pay nine cents like everybody else to go to the movies during the World War II era. And he'd walk in the door, and I, I'm quoting a sign. He would get pointed at a sign that said Mexicans and Negroes to the balcony. Hmm. And he would sit in the balcony. So this was what he grew up in. And hmm. then he would leave school early in the year when he was young. Starting at age seven, he would pick sugar beets and cotton. He'd leave school early. He'd come back to school late after summer because he was following the crops with his family. Mm-hmm. And... There was this unjust stereotype that came about from that because a lot of the Mexicans uh, were the predominant in his area, cotton pickers and um, crop pickers and migrant workers, even though there were white, um, Anglo, and all sorts of <laughs> colored skins picking the crops. His were singled out, and he said there was one term that always struck him worse than anything. It was dumb Mexican mm-hmm. because he was behind in school, and it wasn't anything about his ethnicity. It was about the fact that he was gone for, gone for three, year, three months of every year. Mm-hmm. And he overcame all that. He had an uncle that was a great forward thinker. His name was Nicholas Benavides. And he is the second hero in this story because he led him down a path away from all that anger and bitterness. Mm-hmm. Roy was a fighter. He was, he got to the point where anybody had to just look at him wrong and he'd deck him. Mm. And he, his uncle would say that he logged more time in the principal's office than he did at his own job <laughs> with Roy because right. he was always decking people. And he was decking them because they were calling him racial norm or anybody else. He stood up for anybody that was Hispanic that was mm-hmm. getting nailed. And he finally turned around. His uncle would say, you know, the, an answer to a racial slur does not have to be a punch in the nose. Right. And there is honor and restraint. And you can better our position in life by not breaking the law, right. getting an education and doing the right thing. Well, he dropped out of school at age 14 and ultimately was led to the Texas National Guard. Mm. 
he was kind of inspired by Audie Murphy, mm-hmm. great World War II, most decorated World War II soldier. And he had been a, a, a migrant worker. He had been a, a sharecropper with Audie his Audie Murphy had? He had. That's how, that was his beginning. Really? And that was something that Adam, or that, um, Roy Benavides aspired to. And he, and he joined the Texas National Guard, okay. um, at age 17. And, um, then at age 19 joined the army. He went into the recruiter and the, as the legend goes, and I spoke to various people about this, and there's varying stories, but the, the, the gist of the story is he went into the recruiter's office, went up to the army recruiter, and said, I want to go airborne. And the guy looked at him, and, Ad, and um, Roy was only five foot six. Mm-hmm. He said, boy, I don't think you're big enough to go airborne. And the legend is that he got in the guy's face and said, I can cut you down to my size soon enough. <laughs> at that moment, the, air, the, the marine recruiters were on him, the air force was coming over, <laughs> And this army guy came over and pushed the army and said, he said, get away guys. He said, he said, buddy, you're army all the way. We need more men like you. Oh, cool. And they signed that? him up. And that's, that's how he got his start in the military. And then he, you know, ultimately led his way all the way to, to Vietnam where he was, he was, uh, his first tour in 1965, he stepped on a landmine. Was he a, a Green Beret? He was not a Green Beret. He was, no. ju- he was airborne. He was airborne. Um, but oh, he was, was never a Green Beret? He was a Green Beret, oh, but first, first tour. First tour is airborne. First tour he was airborne. Got it. And then he made it to Vietnam in 65 in that first really big surge mm-hmm. of when we really, really put the biggest um, number, the mm-hmm. b- largest number of troops on the ground. Mm-hmm. He stepped on a landmine okay. while on a patrol and he had a compressed spinal like fracture, everything. He was told he would never walk again. In fact, he didn't even know if he was going to regain senses. Um, the doctor didn't think he'd regain his senses mm-hmm. at, at the beginning. But he came back from that, taught himself to walk again. And here he is about... He was 30 and decides, I want to be a Green Beret. Mm-hmm. Similar, like Adam. Mm-hmm. How, where do, where do, where do these people come from yeah, right. that, you know, want to rise above whatever their predicament was? And he said, you know, I can retire. And the doctor was saying, you got a medical retirement. And they were encouraging him. He said, you don't, not only do you, do, do you, is one warranted, but you deserve it. You have served. You've mm-hmm. gone through all They were telling that to Adam months. too. They were. Just they told him to. After his eye injury. Another common theme, right? Yeah. yeah. And he just did not want to quit. He said, the only thing back in Cuero, Texas, or um, El Campo, Texas, is, and he would he, he wrote about this himself in his own notes. He said it's a, um, a dumb Mexican named Roy Benavides. Mm-hmm. He said, but in the army, I'm Sergeant right. Roy Benavides, and I can do something, and I'm going to do it again, and I'm going to go back to Vietnam. And he decided he wanted to be a Green Beret, and he did, and that's when he went back and ultimately went on this mission where he saved the lives of eight men was wounded more than 30 times, refused to get on the really? helicopter. He was holding his own intestines in. He'd done hand-to-hand combat in a landing zone and refused to get into that helicopter until the last survivor was on board. Huh. And um, that is the the gist of, of yeah. Roy's story. And it, with Roy's story... That's what I, I remember reading an account of that extraction. Right. That's where I heard about Roy. Extraordinary, you know. Extraordinary legend. I mean, that's what people just say. Fighting people off with his, his sidearm and then his knife, and, you know, like you said, wounded. Here's a classic times. example of him. He got he was it was a day off, and when he heard this going on, this mission took place in Cambodia. Right. They the two forty of the Salt Helicopter Company were the guys that went to get him out, and he said um, he heard this cry for help that they needed help. A couple one helicopter had been shot down. A few of the helicopter guys had been killed. Half the team was dead or wounded. They were stacking the bodies of their own dead as cover in this LZ. And a a helicopter came in trailing smoke and lands and he runs over and the door gunner 
who'd been shot through the chest, um, dies in Roy's arms. Hmm. And after he dies, he lays him down gently, runs to the next helicopter and says, bring me, take me in. So not, I mean, these are the things where this is somebody who'd overcome a serious injury, spent six months in a hospital, been on the ground, seen death in the face. So he, is he the only one that goes back in? He was, the, he was the belly man. The helicopter guys were going in, the 240th yeah. assault oh, helicopter that, that's company. That's incredible too, by the way. Yeah. Those guys were courageous. There, no, absolutely. And he went in and all that he had on him, cause he was on his way to breakfast at the time, or actually lunch and the mess hall. And all he had on him was his eight inch special forces knife. Over time, like that knife has expanded to 14 inches. Uh-huh. It was an eight inch special forces knife right. and a bottle of Tabasco sauce. He didn't have a sidearm? Nothing. Did he pick up a weapon out of? He picked up a medical bag. He jumped into that LZ with a medical bag, his knife, and I just threw in the Tabasco sauce because it was kind of funny that that's, he had that in his pocket yeah. and got on the ground. And then he just put together this extraordinary defense. These guys were already just, you know, blood loss and everything. They, they were fighting the best they could, but they were low on ammo and they were also, he, he was able to direct fields of fire and put together a perimeter that would at least hold them off. And then he called in danger close air support, literally napalm almost on their position to keep these there was there was at least 300 NVA shown, I mean, reported from the air, and that was what was in the open and oh, under wow. the jungle. So they, they estimated there was thousands there. Really? They, they had accidentally infiltrated an enemy base complex, and they were stuck in the middle of it, surrounded. And hmm. he went into this situation and out. So, again, another hero, another uh, a legend, and it um, it's a, it's inspiring to tell the stories because yeah. anything that's going on in your own life. When you read these stories or research these stories, mm-hmm. you just take a step back and say, wow. Yeah. Wow. It's all perspective, of course. It's right. all context of your part in life, but it's, what, it's, what neat was and the inspiring. biggest difference between, uh, for you writing, uh, legend and fearless? Like how, how did it, you know, how is your life different when you wrote those two stories? Well, I have kids. And so fearless was tough because Adam had kids similar age as mine when mm-hmm. he was, killed mm-hmm. and hearing those stories and and um that was very it really made me appreciate you traveled around and interviewed all these people i at, interviewed at their location at right? their location okay. i went to alaska i went to arkansas i went to virginia beach right. wherever i could meet these guys did and you ever go over to afghanistan to, i did did no, not yeah, i did not and, and i wouldn't have been invited with deb group right <laughs> anyway <laughs> i could have flown over there and hung out and been a, a you know a journalist and right. then reports from the bar right um but no i it, it was all i all my reports i try and do all my interviewing from eyewitnesses who were there or from accounts written by the individuals who were there no secondary right. secondhand experience right. um if i say if it's a legendary situation i say so in the book yeah. so you know but I think what was different most between the two is that legend took place yeah, 47 years ago. Right. It was a lot longer ago. 47 years. And these Did guys... Did you find memories were a little bit different or was people really sharp about what happened? Certain things are very sharp. And that's what I do. I try and find where all those memories intersect. Right. And where multiple in- uh, memories intersect, I call that the absolute truth. And I do almost a bar graph. And I know these are my parts that I know happened. And then from there, you expand out. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have to go back and tell somebody that told you this, what you heard about it over here, mm-hmm. and that clarifies something else. And right, it's just right. a big puzzle. Right. And at the end of the day, I try and... Do you have only... like sticky notes and everything? Like, how do you... What's your writing process when you do this? People ask every time after you do it, because I, I have a lot of detail and I try and just meld yeah, it all together. It you get the perspective from the air and the ground and, you know, mm-hmm. um, the, the, C, the CNC helicopter, the guys that are actually flying mm-hmm. the, the fast movers. And honestly, 
Mark, I have no idea how it comes together. I really don't. Sometimes it comes together faster than other times, but it's a cluster. Yeah, it's a right. total cluster. You have this great plan, just like they say, when you go into battle, it all no changes when the, when the first bullet's right. fired. For me, I have this beautiful thing laid out in my mind. I'm like, oh, this is, I'm going to do it like this, and it's going to come through like this, and it's going to be beautiful, and I can knock this out in six months. <laughs> and then I get into it. and yeah, Two years later, you're like, everything. Because I just don't, you never know what you're, what's what you can get if you talk to that next person that right. gets referred to you. Right, exactly. And that's the beauty of it. And you can't say no. I mean, these are people's lives, and the least I can do is give them, devote my life to them, mm-hmm. especially when they've given their lives Absolutely. to tell their story. Well, you've done a terrific job. What is next for you? Do you have, some, do you have another project lined up? Um, I do. Um, I've got a couple. It's been really, I've been really fortunate that people have come to me with stories mm-hmm. since these books, and there's a few that I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. And this one, I may step out the, outside the box of America because they, we talk about freedom and mm-hmm. these guys who are putting everything on the line, and that's kind of a universal theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's people doing it all over the world. Right. And I heard, I, I learned about a story about a, an individual who had been abducted by um, terrorists, and his um, and I, I don't want to go too deep into mm-hmm. it, but it was uh, a family man, mm-hmm. and it's a story as told through a family member. Mm-hmm. And and at the end of the day, this is one of those situations where you're doing right, and it's not again, it's not just America. It's mm-hmm. it's an international theme that needs to be embraced, and mm-hmm. these guys fighting for what's right and fighting for freedom and um, democracy and against all these terrible things that there are bad people out there. Mm-hmm. And, sure. and these are some of the, this is the light against the dark. Hmm. And that's kind of what I, it will, it will be another story like that. And I'll just do my best to honor them and honor the story. Excellent. Well, good yeah. luck with that. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming down. This has been really interesting. Uh, folks, if you're listening, um, two books I highly recommend. Uh, Eric's latest book is called Legend. I know you're, uh, if you're just listening to me, you can't see the title, but it's got a really neat title with a helicopter on it. Um, and this is about Roy Benavides. Benavides, you nailed it. And then uh, Fearless, which is about the Adam Brown story, uh, U.S. Navy SEAL. Uh, both are excellent. And then um, I don't have it, but the only thing worth dying for, I think I'll, uh, I'll take a look at that, too. That sounds terrific. Everyone over. And that's about the OEAs. ODA 574. ODA 574. Thank you very much, Sherrick. Thanks for Appreciate having me. Coming Appreciate by. It. Thank yeah, you. Take care. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.